Wednesday, April 10th, 2013, episode number 45 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Nation Today podcast hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published on Wednesdays right here on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes Store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast in the iTunes Store if you have yet to do so. I want to start off the show this week by sending out a hearty congratulations to you folks, the listeners. Last week was our most listened to show on Football Nation Today history. Uh, well over 1,000 views, bordering on 1,100 views last time I checked. So big up to you guys. Love the listener participation. Uh, last week on the show, one of our main topics was Tony Romo and the ludicrous contract extension Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys gave him. That goes to show you, center show around bashing the Cowboys, Jerry Jones and Tony Romo. You're going to get a lot of interest, going to get a lot of listeners. So we thank you for that. And also, as I've said time and time again, we encourage the listener participation because it's a good reassurance for me uh, that I am not talking into the abyss. Uh, but I think we have an interesting show on tap for you today to help you get through the midweek. Uh, coming up momentarily in our first down segment, uh, the New York Jets have dominated the NFL hot stove over the past couple of days. We've stayed relatively clear of the Jets for the most part this offseason, but they are holding voluntary workouts next week. Darrell Rivas, still on the Jets roster. What is his status? What kind of leverage do the Jets have with Rivas? Do they have any leverage at all? And uh, there's reportedly been a snag in the uh, reported trade talks with the Jets and Buccaneers about Rivas. Uh, and it's not because the Buccaneers are reluctant to give up a first-round pick. No, it's because the Jets reportedly may want more than that for Rivas. So we'll talk about what a fair asking price is for Darrell Rivas. And also Tim Tebow. We've certainly stayed clear of Tebow over the past several months, but with workouts beginning next week for the Jets, Tebow is still on the team. That begs the question, what are the Jets' plans for him? What should the Jets' plans be for him? Then in the second down segment, very excited to welcome back Shalise Manza-Young of the Boston Globe to the show. Shalise, of course, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe and Boston.com. Uh, one of the top off-field stories we followed this offseason is the prospect of a gay player or players coming out in the NFL Shalise has a unique perspective on that, as she spent a lot of her professional career inside of NFL locker rooms. So I asked Shalise how accepting she feels NFL locker rooms are and would be of a gay player. And also, as she is a journalist, would go about covering the story. And I also talked to Shalise a little bit about Rob Gronkowski's latest forearm injury. He may be on tap for another surgery. And uh, is it fair to ask whether or not Gronkowski's off-field lifestyle is a hindrance to his recovery? Then we move on to our third down segment, the Big Up Slowdown segment, talking about issues such as who is the most marketable player in the league? Robert Griffin III's jersey was the highest selling jersey in the NFL last year. Does that mean RG3 is now the league's most marketable player and thus the face of the league? Uh, Joe Flacco will play Johnny Unitas in a movie titled Unitas We Stand uh, coming out soon, but also Kevin Costner is filming a movie with the Browns GM titled Draft Day in which he tries to trade for the number one pick. Which movie is more interesting to football fans? Which movie am I more interested in seeing? We'll talk about that. And also, is this a make-or-break year for Philip Rivers? That's a story that we will discuss. And in the fourth down segment, the Reamer rant, 
Bit of a different take this week, talking about the Brian Banks story. We all know the story, top-rated high school football prospect in 2002, uh, wrongfully convicted of raping a girl at his local high school. Uh, Banks was in jail for five years, was recently released, and signed by the Atlanta Falcons. I'll tell you about how sports can sometimes highlight what is wrong in our society and how and how, what kind of example the Banks story is for that, and also uh, how the media should cover the bank story this August when he reports to training camp. It's Football Nation Today, episode number 45. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. So leading us off here, getting the meat and potatoes of the show, as we like to say, on our first down segment, reported talks between the Jets and Buccaneers, a deal involving Star cornerback Darrell Rivas. These talks have reportedly hit a snag. And some have suspected that's because the Buccaneers are reluctant to give up a first-round pick for Rivas. But no, that's actually not the case. The Buccaneers are willing to give up a first-round pick for Rivas, according to Pro Football Talk. But they are not willing to give up more than that. And the Jets reportedly want more than the first-round pick for Rivas. And the Buccaneers' first-round pick this season is 13th overall. Uh, now, this story has accelerated into the press because the Jets have an off-season conditioning program that begins on April the 15th. Uh, the Jets plan to force Revis, as according to ESPN New York, to attend these non-mandatory workouts to collect bonus money. Uh, Revis can collect up to $3 million in bonus money after Revis renegotiated his contract in 2010, following his second holdout in three years. He agreed to a clause in the deal that requires his attendance at all off-season workouts in order to collect his bonus money. What complicates this issue somewhat is Revis underwent ACL surgery last October, so he's still rehabbing the injury. He's rehabbed it in Arizona, away from the team facilities, but Jets GM John Inzik said he expects Revis to attend these workouts and expects Revis to be a New York Jet. You would expect Inzik to say that, but what's the real situation here between the Jets and Revis? How have they played this? In my humble opinion, they've played this poorly. Really poorly, because even though Revis is under contract for only one more year, uh, everyone around the league knows the Jets have to trade him. And that's maybe why the Buccaneers are the only team that's willing to surrender a first-round pick for Revis's services. Because, as I said in past shows, uh, pass defense is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, for a defense in today's NFL. Knowing that, I would have thought the suitors would have been lining up out the door for Darrell Rivas. Uh, I thought Rivas would have been great on the Colts, the Broncos, after their secondary's horrendous performance last postseason against Baltimore. I say, you know, how about you put him on San Francisco, put a legit shutdown corner on that elite defense? I mean, I thought there would be a litany of suitors for Darrell Rivas, but as of this recording, with the information we have before us, it seems as if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the only serious suitor for Revis because they are the only team that is willing to part with their first-round pick, and that's probably because the league knows the Jets don't have any leverage here with Revis. They have to trade him. They have misplayed this poorly. And now here we are, entering the middle of April. The draft is just a few short weeks away, and Revis is still on the Jets' roster. And the longer he stays with the Jets, um, the demand is going to decrease. Or I should say what teams are willing to give up for him is going to decrease. Because not only are you that much closer to Revis reaching free agency, but also, more importantly, you know the Jets are in a bigger and bigger corner 
the longer they keep Revis on their roster. Because if he stays, they're going to have a malcontent. I mean, this is a guy who's held out already twice in his NFL career. And they're not going to resign this offseason. So if he stays, they risk getting nothing for him when he leaves as a free agent. So what are the Jets going to do? Are they going to have a, a, a malcontent in Darrell Revis on their roster this season, a year in which they're not going anywhere anyway? I mean, with or without Revis, they're going to finish towards the bottom of the AFC East, if not the entire conference. So the Jets have nothing to gain by keeping Revis on their roster. They only have something to lose because he might be a malcontent, might create a greater distraction that that organization does not need at this point in time. Um, and he's going to leave this offseason as free agents, and the Jets will risk getting nothing for him, who, when healthy, is the best quarterback in the game. So it's a bad situation in New York. They just have played this poorly. The worst-kept secret in the NFL, or one of them, that they need to trade Revis. So if I were the Jets, I would take Tampa's offer and run with it. First-round pick this year is Tampa Bay's selection, 13th overall, pretty darn good. You'd have two picks in the top 15 in the draft. Uh, take it and run with it, if I were the Jets, because uh, the longer you dance around here with Revis, uh, the worse and, frankly, murkier the situation is going to get. Now, Tim Tebow is also still with the Jets. He will be attending voluntary workouts next week. What are the Jets' plans with Tebow? The best answer to that question is, I don't know. Frankly, nobody knows. What should the Jets do with Tebow, though? To me, it's simple, and I've been beating this drum for a while. Give him a legitimate chance to start a quarterback this year. And don't dramatically change around the system for him. Don't make it into a wildcat offense. No, 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 no. Give Tebow a chance to start as a legit NFL quarterback in a legit NFL-style offense. Let's see if he can do it. If Tebow can't do it, then okay. You've proved your point. You can move on to David Garrard or Mark Sanchez or somebody else. Tebow can sit on the bench, and the media hype will be almost non-existent because Tebow had a chance in training camp and just couldn't get the job done. If you're the Jets and you don't give Tebow a legitimate chance to start a quarterback this offseason throughout mini camps, voluntary workouts, training camp in late July and August. If you don't give Tebow a legitimate chance, they'll continue to beat the media drum about him in New York. Why? Because there are a lot of beat writers assigned to the Jets. And they don't promise to be that interesting of an on-field product this year. Really, they're going to be bad. Real bad, in fact. So, got people who cover that team need something to write about. What are they going to write about if Tim Tebow doesn't get a, a fair shake this offseason? Oh, Tim Tebow still not getting a chance. Jets continue to waste him on the bench. So if you're the Jets, what do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose. It's a no-lose situation. Give Tebow a legitimate chance to start as a quarterback at some point throughout these training camps. And maybe he'll be okay. I mean, let's be real. Let's look at the scoreboard. It was pretty okay when he started with Denver two years ago. Led them to the playoffs after a 1-4 start. Even won a playoff game against Pittsburgh. Won a couple national championships as quarterback in Florida. Give him a chance. I think his on-field track record deserves it. And I also think from a media perspective, if you're the Jets, you want the least amount of distractions possible this season. It's why you have to trade to Rivas sooner, sooner than later. And also why 
Give Tim Tebow a chance, or else you're going to continue to feed that media drum. Feed the media, and you're the Jets. You want to avoid doing that. Now, last point here before we get on to our conversation with Shalise Mans Young of the Boston Globe. Uh, the court is beginning to uh, hear arguments on the NFL concussions case this week. Of course, when former players are suing the league over concussion-linked injuries and are saying the NFL glorified, vi glorified violence and profited from damaging hits to the head. Obviously, that's a story we'll keep an eye on throughout the oncoming weeks. Just thought I would introduce that, reintroduce that topic to you since we haven't spoken about it for a little bit. But coming up next, it's our second down segment and our conversation with Shalise Manziung of the Boston Globe about the prospect of a gay player or players coming out in the NFL and also with a Rob Gronkowski injury and some of the mystery that has surrounded him this offseason. Shalise Manziung after this, and then we'll get on with our big up slowdown segment in third down. Welcome back, Football Nation, today as we enter our second down segment, which is where we spend some time talking about the biggest off-field NFL stories of the past week. This week, we're going to do some off-field stuff, but also talk about some on-field stories as well with one of our returning champions, Shalise Manza-Young, covers the Patriots for the Boston Globe and Boston.com. Shalise, how are you? I'm well, Alex. How are you doing? Doing well. Again, we're talking with Shalise Manza-Young, Boston Globe, here on Football Nation today. Finally, a spring day! Here in the Boston area, Shalise, it's unbelievable to walk outside and not have to wear the winter coat. Yeah, it's great, but I'm weary of how long it's going to last. I think somebody told me at the end of the week it might go away temporarily. So yes, it will. I guess we have to enjoy it while we can, and I, oh, I want it to stay this way. <laughs> me too, Shalise, absolutely. Um, got, got, uh, yeah, I saw 40s at the end of the week, so we have that to look oh. forward to. But here's something that we've spent a lot of time talking about, uh, on the show this offseason. I've also spent some time ranting about the horrific weather here at the end of the winter, but the football listeners out there are more interested in uh, the big story we followed this offseason about the probability of a gay player or players, if we're to believe the recent reports, uh, coming out soon. There's been a lot of talk about how accepting NFL locker rooms would be of a gay player. Former linebacker Scott Fajita, I thought, wrote an excellent op-ed in the, in the New York Times a couple weeks ago in which he said locker rooms would be accepting, just like seemingly every other workplace in 21st century America. Uh, as somebody who spends a lot of time in NFL locker rooms, what is your read, Shalise, on how accepting a place they are? You know, I, I do think, by and large, I think it would be an adjustment. You know, I do think there's that sort of um, narrow-minded thinking that if a player, you know, comes out that some of his teammates would you know, at first not want to shower with him maybe or, you know, be around him in, in that sort of way while they're getting dressed and thinking that all of a sudden this guy is going to want to, you know, come on to him sexually like that, which is stupid because obviously if you've had this teammate for one season, two seasons or longer and he's never come on to you before, <laughs> why is he going to start coming on to you all of a sudden? Right. Don't flatter because... yourself, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. He's not going to, just because he is brave enough to say, hey, I am, I'm gay, it doesn't mean he's all of a sudden going to want to, you know, become intimate with you or, or make, you know, be forward with you or whatever, hit on you. So, you know, I, I do think by and large that it would be accepted. Um, you know, I, I am African-American half, half, um, and, you know, my husband is black and things like that, and Unfortunately, a lot of African-American men still are, you know, they do have that homophobic thing. I think a lot of times you'll hear, well, I don't mind gay people, but I just don't, you know, they don't want to be perceived as gay or things like that. So 
I think we saw that at the Super Bowl when it was Chris Culliver from the 49ers and, and he said what he said. And I think that a little bit of the African-American male attitude, which, like I said, unfortunately is, you know, still persists. Um, and also that just macho thing, you know, and unfortunately the stigma still is out there that, you know, gay men probably aren't as manly and macho as a straight man or things like that. So I think it would be an adjustment in the locker room. Um, and of course there will be, you know, maybe three or four guys who would have more of a problem with it than the other 50 guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it would be, to me, you would be your generation, Jackie Robinson, if it was one guy who had the bravery to come out by himself as opposed to maybe three or four guys at the same time. I really think you would be your generation, Jackie Robinson. Now, uh, Shalisa, Jason Cole on Yahoo Sports wrote an article this week in which he said the media should tread lightly uh, whenever a gay player or gay players come out in the NFL. And I think at this point we can say it's going to be a when, not if. Um, How do you as a journalist intend to cover this story? Again, when, not if it occurs. How do you feel is the appropriate way or is there an appropriate way? Well, I think certainly you can't write about it until somebody definitively says, you know, I want to announce that I am gay um, and takes that step. So, you know, and Jason wrote very eloquently about it um, as he does for a lot of things, but, you know, he's right. You can't chase the, the idea that it's, you know, if somebody, there's rumblings that it might be one or two guys and, you know, you don't call up just for the idea of finding out who it is. This is an intensely personal thing. And even though, like I said, I think you would become this generation, Jackie Robinson, being black is very obvious. You know, if you right. look at somebody, you can tell they're black. So it's not like there had to be some announcement and that it was a secret that Jackie Robinson was black. And then all of a sudden he came out being, you know, revealing that you're gay is an intensely personal thing. It's not something you wear on your skin. So I think first and foremost, you can't write about it or even approach somebody about it until they come out and say, yes, this is who I am. And they take that step. So that certainly, you know, this isn't a witch hunt. This isn't like trying to find somebody you know, in a corporation who cheated people out of millions of dollars. It's not, you know, investigative journalism thing where you're trying to uncover some wrongdoing. This is an intensely personal deal, and you have to let the person do it on their own terms and in their own time. And once that happens, then you can try to, you know, write the story and talk to the person about why they made that decision and those sorts of things. On that note, Shalise, what did you make of uh, the Combine Mante Teo? And how many uh, media types, talk shows in particular, seem to be more guilty of this than print types, who seemingly, you know, who made it a topic of their shows, you know, speculating about Teo's sexuality and how big of an effect that would have on his draft status. So what did you make of that whole episode, which, again, was 100% uh, speculatory? Yeah, that was—I felt bad for him, Um I really did. You know, the kid stood up there and he answered every question. And, you know, the cynical part of me knows that he was probably prepped many times uh, and went through the rigors with his agents and his publicity people and things like that. And they tried to prepare him the best they could for the situation he was going to be in in the combine with literally it was had to have been 150 reporters sitting there, cameras, microphones at the ready to talk to him about the situation. NFL Network showed it live, the press conference that he had. So you talk about being, you know, under the microscope, but I thought he handled it incredibly well. And again, if, if he is, 
gay. That's something that he should be able to say in his own time. Not, you know, and, and like I said, I really felt bad for him. I feel bad for him throughout the whole situation. If it truly was that he was duped by somebody, I don't know if it's because I'm a mom or a woman or whatever. I just feel horrible for him that he had to go through that as such a public person and he's mocked and, you know, Jay Leno's making fun of him and he's the butt of all these jokes and things like that. So, well, thankfully Leno's jokes aren't that funny, Shuey's. So, <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of them aren't. Um, a few of them were, I'm you know, admittedly. Um, but, you know, the poor kid, and you just hope that he can put that behind him and that he's judged strictly or mostly on his football talent. There's always character questions and background questions that come up in the pre-draft process. But overall, you should be judged on whether or not you can play football or what right. level they think you can. And hopefully that is how he's going to be judged throughout this whole process. A uh, few more questions on this. Game. We're talking with Shalise Manz Young in the Boston Globe here in Football Nation today. Uh, to go back to the Combine, what did the news of NFL executives asking players about their sexual orientation uh, at the Combine say about where the culture of the league is on this? Um, you know, I, like I said, this is a really macho environment and change seems to come a little slower in the NFL on some things than it does in the general public. And even look, even the American population at large, it's still kind of a dividing, a divisive idea of, you know, home gay marriage and things like that. And, you know, how much was it talked about during this last election? How much attention is it getting now? I personally believe, and I did talk to a couple of my colleagues about this at the owners meetings in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago. I believe that if it's one guy who does come out, I think it would have to be a superstar. Mm. You know, I think it would yeah. have to be a superstar player who comes out. And I don't want to name names and, you know, make some, create some rumor or whatever, but I think it would have to be a superstar player, maybe a superstar quarterback because that's the most respected position on the field who comes out and says it. I don't think the first guy who's an active player who comes out could be, you know, the fourth string linebacker or whatever. I think it has to be a name guy, a guy that is already beloved and admired for his ability to play the game at such a high level. I think it would be the best, you know what I mean? The best right, of, sure. of all worlds. And some guy who probably is used to media scrutiny anyway for his play. Um, and now he's just taking that next step. If a, couple of guys three four guys came out at the same time i think also that would mitigate it but like i i really do think that it would have to be a superstar player who came out and maybe even a superstar coming into the draft that he can just be like look this is who i am take me as i am and you know he goes on to have a very successful career it would have to be a can't miss guy going into the draft yeah, I mean, one of my theories on this, Lisa, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, and I'm pulling this from nowhere, but it's something I've conjured up. You know, I look at the NFL and the structure of the league, and I say, let's say a player comes out in August, beginning of training camp. I think undoubtedly it would be a massive story through the entirety of training camp. But then the games start, and there are only 16 of them, and the focus then shifts to the on-field action. And as we know, the media access in the NFL, I mean, you know this, Shalisa, media access in the NFL, uh, not even close to what it is in baseball, especially if you cover a certain team up here by the name of the Patriots. <laughs> um, so I, I guess my point is, you know, like, let's take baseball, for example. There's 162 games. I'm a baseball diehard fan, Shalise, but even I recognize a lot of these games, especially early on, not all that interesting. The people covering those games need to uh, have the human interest story, to, 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 to have something to write about every day. I don't know if that's necessary in the NFL, just by nature of the season. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think you want to do it on the eve of training camp. I mean, I think, I forget where I saw the quote. Um, It was from a football player who said, you know, if a guy came out the week of the Super Bowl, would it be a distraction? Would I be bothered by it? Yes. But if he came out in like April, it wouldn't, you know, in this news cycle, it seems like, you know, if something breaks, quote unquote, 10 minutes ago, you know, then it's old news by the time a half hour passes. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's how things go right now. So if a guy did come out in April or May, I think that would be good for everybody involved. I think for his team, it's, you know, a big deal at first. And maybe it, does, maybe it is a big deal the first few days of training camp. Um, but by then, you know, everybody can make adjustments and things like that. And, you know, prepare for how they're going to deal with all of that from the player to the coaches, to his teammates, things like that. I think if it did happen right on the eve of training camp, it might be a distraction for the team because it would be such, you know, that's a, that's a massive shift. Um, But yeah, I just, I think best case scenario would be to do it in the off season, you know, because like I said, then you can prepare and everybody involved can just, how best do we handle this um, and just, make things as seamless for the player, his teammates, the coaches, the organization as possible. Right. And then in training camp starts, of course, and we talk about the quarterback controversy, whatever that particular team is facing. Right. Uh, right. Shalise a young Boston Globe. Final few questions here, Shalise. As always, thanks for your time. There is no controversy, a quarterback here at the Patriots. See, that's a nice transition. But <laughs> Rob Gronkowski, some controversy surrounding him. He may undergo another surgery to repair his infected left forearm. Uh, Drew Rosenhaus' agent made a statement earlier today saying that some of his reports are overblown. But nonetheless, it seems as if his availability for the start of the season may be in jeopardy. You look at Gronkowski, Shalise, his injury history is why he dropped in the draft coming out of Arizona. He's had surgeries at the end of each of the past two seasons. Are we at a point now, Patriots fans, Patriots followers, where... We can't take Gronkowski's health for granted. I mean, is this now a question it seems like he may always have to deal with? Yeah, you know what's what's funny is that he dropped in the draft because of his back injury. And to the best of my knowledge, the back has never been a problem since he came to the Patriots. Um, It's all this other stuff that keeps coming up. The the thing that, that I think with Gronkowski is I think you always have to be concerned about his legs because of his size and because guys just can't tackle him you see them always diving at his legs so I think you always are going to have cases where he might have a knee problem and now as we see you know with the wrist he didn't hurt it being tackled bracing himself during a tackle but you could see that happening also um so I think you know you might have to be concerned with that broken bone stuff because again nobody can tackle him you haven't seen it's it's hard you know I think you look at him and you don't want to make the distinction between like fluke injuries and non-fluke injuries. So I think every injury is a fluke at some level. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, Oh, I think I'm going to, you know, suffer severely sprained ankle today. (laughs) That doesn't happen. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's because with him, you look at how big he is and you just think that he is indestructible. And that's why these things surprise you. Whereas with Hernandez, you know, I don't think you can count on him being healthy for a full season because he gets hurt in season with the MCLs and things like that. And he comes back to play after two or three weeks, but he's still not 100%, so he's still hampered for the rest of the season. So, you know, I guess at this point, you don't want to count on either one of them going through a full 16-game season, which, to 
you know, take this a couple steps further, and I'm going to digress a little bit here, is Please. why I think it's silly that they put so much into Danny Amendola. Because while he might be pretty good, one of the things that you got from Wes Welker is you knew he was going to be on the field pretty much every day, practice, every game. He was always out there. You know, Julian Edelman has missed significant time. Danny Amendola has missed significant time over the last couple of years. And now you have the injury concerns with Hernandez and Gronkowski. So I don't, I don't know if I'm a Patriots fan, if I can really look and on paper, there's some strength in this, in the receiving core and the, the pass catchers. Um, but then you immediately have to wonder, well, how many of them are going to make it through 16 games or how many games is this one or that one going to miss? So it's, it's really uh, an interesting scenario, I think, all around with those players who are, you know, pass catchers. I can't say receivers, but pass catchers. I was going to bring up that exact same point. You must have access to my show notes here because that was one of the next questions I'm going to ask you about uh, Welker and how durable he was and all these guys, Gronkowski, Hernandez, Amendola, centerpiece receiving game, all of them to varying degrees have had injury concerns throughout their careers. So I'll skip ahead to this question, Shalise. Uh, if you question whether or not Gronkowski takes proper care of himself off the field, uh, are you being a fuddy-duddy? I love that word. Or do you have a legitimate point? Um, you know, I think the thing is, is that guys probably, you know, football players, professional athletes, general, you know, Joe Schmo off the street, they always do stupid things. The problem for a lot of these younger athletes or, or athletes in general these days that they don't quite seem to get, or Gronk doesn't quite seem to get at this point is that everybody who has a phone is a paparazzi. <laughs> right. So the things that you used to be able to do you know, even if you go all the way back to the Drew Bledsoe incident at the nightclub, you know, I don't think anybody photographed that. They weren't pulling out their iPhone to get it on video, you know, Drew Bledsoe crowd surfing or whatever it was. You know, whereas Rob Gronkowski goes on stage in Las Vegas and pulls up his shirt and is dancing like it was horrible dancing, if I'm going to judge it. But, oh, boy. You know, he's up, it was awful. But he was <laughs> up there doing that. And of course, you know, people are pulling out their phones to take pictures and to record video. And of course, somebody wants to you know, sell it to TMZ or give it to TMZ or Deadspin or whatever, because that's what people do these days. So I, you know, do you question what he's doing? Again, I, I don't think he's doing anything different than a normal 23-year-old guy who has a significant amount of money does. It's just in his particular case, especially for him, he's very noticeable. You know, he's six foot six. He looks like you know, sort of a statue, so to speak, because he's so chiseled and large and muscular and things like that. It's not like, you know, if Kyle Arrington goes to a nightclub and, and dances and, and acts up a little bit, acts a little crazy, he's not as visible as Rob Gronkowski is. And that, you know, I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're, I think there is some buddy duddy miss to it <laughs> if you do question what he's doing. Partly because now they've made a huge financial investment into him, thinking that he is going to be the future of this team. Um, so you want to see him to, to do smart things. But I think, you know, if you're logical about it, he's not doing anything that any other 23-year-old guy hasn't done before. Right. And, hey, if uh, I was partying with Gronkowski, I wouldn't sell that picture to TMZ. So he said go right on my Facebook page, and that would be my profile pic. A lot of credibility there. <laughs> Again, Shalise Young Boston Globe, we thank you for your time. Uh, last question, I just want to ask you out of some fun here, Shalise. Where does the NFL draft rank on your uh, favorite events or least favorite events to cover <laughs> as an NFL journalist? Um, 
the pre it's the pre-draft stuff that annoys the heck out of me. Um, are you breaking down you know, film right now, Shalise? Are you can no, you tell me about the left guards? Look, here's here's what it is. How many guys are in the draft? Three, four hundred guys. Right. Why am I going to study? You know, 60, 70, 80, 150 guys on the off chance that the Patriots draft three of them. Right. So my general idea is that it once they're drafted by the Patriots, and I know they're going to be with the Patriots. Then I'll, you know, find out more about them and, you know, how they play and where they might fit in. But I'm not one of those draftnik people who's, you know, in my basement on my computer or pulling up my iPad and the all 22 film and all that other stuff. It's just, like I said, there's just far too many guys. I've covered Bill Belichick for far too long to think that, you know, there are guys that I thought he was going to pick. I, I swore up and down they were going <laughs> to draft Clay Matthews because he had coached. You know, he had coached Matthews, Matthews guy in Cleveland, and he fit the bill perfectly and da da da. And what happened? Didn't draft him. So that's happened almost every year. I can't guess what the man's going to do. So it's not really a smart use of my time to sit around trying to guess because I'm Mm. 99.9% wrong. Right. Well, they might trade down as they always do this year, Salise. So if I were you, I'd look I'd look at the depth in the draft, you know, maybe some of the fourth, <laughs> fifth-string linebackers who will be there in the fifth round. Uh, Shalise Manzi-Young, Patriots reporter, Boston Globe, also reader, Boston.com. Shalise, as always, we thank you for the time and enjoy the rest of your day. You bet, Alex. So a big thanks again go out to Shalise Manzi-Young, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe and Boston.com. Always enjoy speaking with Shalise, and we thank her for her time. Now our third down segment. It's a big up slowdown segment. Pretty simple. I say a statement and I express my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying big up or slow down. Question number one. Robert Griffin III's jersey was the highest selling jersey in the NFL last year. Big up or slow down. Does that mean that Robert Griffin III is the most marketable player in the league? I say big up here. Yes, Robert Griffin III is now the most marketable player in the league. Yes, Tom Brady is still huge. Peyton Manning is still big. Adrian Peterson, especially after last season, is big. But in today's world, we're all about the next thing. Brady and Manning have been around for over a decade. Peterson's been around for a number of years. We're all about the next thing. And the next thing is Robert Griffin III. Uh, He has tremendous appeal because of the way in which he plays like the Mike Vick phenomenon, going back almost a, a, a decade ago. Uh, we love quarterbacks who can run, and Robert Griffin III can most certainly run, but unlike Vick and any other mobile quarterback before him, or at least in recent memory, uh, Robert Griffin III can throw with the best of them too. So he's terrific to watch on the field. That's always a big plus. He's the epitome of a dynamic player uh, with both his feet and his arm. And as we talked about last week on this show, I think Robert Griffin III should spend more time in the pocket than outside the pocket this year just to protect his health. And if I were the NFL, I would, eh, I don't know if you can advise a player on how to play, advise a team on how to coach, but I'd be secretly hoping, or maybe not so secretly hoping, that uh, Rob Griffin III stays in this league for a long time. Because again, he's one of your most marketable players, if not your most marketable player. And I think getting clobbered in the head outside the pocket is not a great way to sustain his career. The legs can remain a big weapon for Rob Griffin III, but... He has the ability with his arm to be a very successful pocket passer. That's going to be a very interesting story to watch to see Robert from the third make the return to the field some point this training camp and how all that goes. Um, he plays quarterback, the premier position in the league. So that's why I put Robert Griffin the third up here as well. He plays on the East Coast. 
which is very important. Granted, a little less important in the NFL than the other major sports because of the television contract situation. You know, there are no local broadcasts. They're all national broadcasts. And today, seemingly every sports fan has the NFL package, the Red Zone channel, or something like that that allows him or her to watch all of the games. So it's less of an issue than the, in the NFL than in the other sports. But still, East Coast bias definitely works in his favorite favor excuse me he's playing the Giants twice per year he's playing the Eagles twice per year he's on the East Coast um Andy Andrew Lux in Indianapolis Colin Kaepernick's on the West Coast as is Russell Wilson just naming the spectacular quarterbacks from last year's draft class so I think that works in Robert Griffin's favor and also I think Robert Griffin III has tremendous appeal as an educated African-American he's well-spoken highly educated went to Baylor um, obviously he didn't graduate, but still, uh, humble beginnings, built himself up, self-made. I think Robert Griffin III has a lot of things going in his favor. So that's, yes, I say he is now the most marketable player in the league. Question number two, speaking about another quarterback who plays on the West Coast and who is not one of the most marketable players in the league, Philip Rivers. He struggled the past two seasons, last year in particular. Rumors surfacing that the Chargers may be looking at quarterbacks in this year's draft. So big up or slow down. Is this a make-or-break season for Phillip Rivers? I say big up here. It is. Because uh, of his age. He's 32. At this point in time, entering your mid-30s, who are you as a player? Uh, I have a preconceived notion about Phillip Rivers in my mind. Because I remember when he tore his ACL in the 2007 AFC Championship game against the Patriots. And he played through that injury. Uh, didn't ask out of the game, didn't come out of the game. And, and I just thought, wow, I mean, this is a tough dude. Uh, this is the kind of guy I want on my football team. And in the subsequent years, he performed very well statistically. In 2009, the Chargers went 13-3 and with him as quarterback. In 2010, he had maybe his best statistical season, throwing for 4,710 yards. But then once he hit 30, he began to decline. In 2011, his quarterback rating fell to 88.7. It was above four. I was above 100 the past two seasons. Fell to 88.7 in 2011, and then uh, last year, 2012, his quarterback rating fell to 88.6, and a lot of costly interceptions last year too. So the big question of Philip Rivers is, can he play like he once did? Now that he's into his 30s, 32 years of age to be exact. Uh, that's the question. So yes. Professionally speaking, it's a make-or-break season for Phillip Rivers, and it may be a bit of a transitional period for the Chargers. They have a new coach in Mike McCoy. I've said it before on this show, that roster is not the roster it was five, six years ago. They've undergone a lot of turnover there, and we'll see this season, giving how Rivers performs, if they'll have to go through a turnover at quarterback. Final topic here in the Big Upper Slowdown segment. It's not Big Upper Slowdown, it's kind of a this or that, but same premise. Uh, Joe Flacco will play Johnny Unitas in a movie titled Unitas We Stand about the Baltimore Colts. Uh, Kevin Costner is filling a movie with the Browns GM titled Draft Day, which will be filmed at the Radio City Music Hall in a couple weeks at the NFL Draft, in which he will try to trade the number one pick. The question is, which movie am I as a football fan and follower looking forward to seeing? Uh, Johnny United, the Joe Flacco movie on Unitas, Unitas We Stand, or the Kevin Costner NFL GM draft day film. Um, after some deliberation, I'm going to go with draft day here. Because frankly, I find that a much more interesting premise. Now, maybe it's because I'm not from Baltimore, so I don't get the parochial tie in with the Colts. But even so, I mean, don't you want to go behind the scenes 
of an NFL front office. Don't you want to see how that process is done? I mean, the NFL draft is one of the highest-rated sporting events of the year, especially the first and second rounds, if you can believe that. All the interest, all the talk. I mean, don't you want to see what happens in an NFL war room? Come on, great books have been written about this. It's about time a great movie gets made about this. Uh, Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams, all his very successful baseball films, making the move over to football, trying his hand at the NFL. And uh, I, for one, am curious about seeing how this is filmed, what it turns out to be, uh, because, well, it's a premise that hasn't been done before. The other sports movie that Flack goes in, been done before. We kind of an autobiographical type thing. I think it's a smaller demographic since it's, Based in Baltimore, and you know, so it's kind of parochial. So, to me, from my perspective, the Kevin Costner draft day movie is more interesting than a Joe Flacco movie, and I, I am looking forward to seeing how that turns out and reading the stories in a couple of weeks about how that's filmed at the Radio City Music Hall in the NFL draft. Now, closing out the show with the Reamer rant, uh, this is the segment where I usually get something petty off of my chest. But this week, it's a bit of a different take. Uh, we could rename it the Reamer Commentary, except it doesn't have the alliteration of Reamer Rant, so we stuck with that name this week, even though it's far from a rant here. Sorry, maybe next week we'll be back to that. But the story I want to talk about is Brian Banks. Uh, we all know the story, or at least we should know the story. Top high, top high school football prospect in 2002, when at the age of 16... He was convicted of raping a girl in a stairwell at their high school in Long Beach, California. Though there was no DNA evidence connecting Banks to the rape, his attorney convinced him to take a plea bargain so he could go to jail for just years instead of decades. That's how the attorney phrased it at the time. Banks took the plea deal and went to prison for five years, recently released from jail. The Atlanta Falcons called him up last week to sign him on. And Banks will try out as a linebacker in training camp for the Falcons this year. Uh, Banks tried it for a couple teams last year, but the Falcons have made a formal offer for him to come in this season to their camps in training camp this summer. Um, it's a great story. And as much of a long shot as it may be, it's still something I'll be very interested in following. And sports can really sometimes highlight what is wrong in our society, what needs to be fixed in our society. I think it ties well it's my conversation with Shalice in the second down segment about the prospect of a gay NFL player or players, about, you know, team executives at the Combine asking players about their sexual orientation and the, uh, the, the speculatory nature surrounding Manti Teo, and that story should get a new breath of life as the draft is just a few weeks away from us. Uh, you know, about, and that's, and I think it really speaks to, and let's also not forget, in the NFL, we have a lot of uh, outspoken advocates for gay rights. Uh, Punter Chris Cluey. Uh, Brandon Ian Badejo, special teamer, formerly of the Ravens. Uh, Scott Fajita, former linebacker, wrote the op-ed in the New York Times a couple weeks ago. Uh, there's a lot of very outspoken gay advocates in the NFL. Women seems to be getting a lot of traction, just as it has nationally over the past decade. Um, and I think this is another example of the NFL in sports, sometimes highlighting what is wrong or needs changing in our society. I mean, Brian Banks is an African-American. And even though there was no DNA, DNA evidence tying him to this rape, his attorney convinced him to take a plea bargain. Uh, I am a white male. I come from a rather affluent middle-class family. Uh, if I were in this situation, tied to the rape of a girl at, a high, at my high school, uh, if there was no DNA evidence, you can bet your ass my attorney wouldn't advise me to take a plea bargain. I'd go straight to, I'd go straight to court. Why? Because there's no DNA evidence. I'm innocent. I'm going to win. Well, Brian Banks, 
Can't always be sure of that in his particular situation. We're still at that point at some time at, at some cases in this country. Um, so it points in some flaws in our legal system. And it's very interesting from a number of angles. And that's why this training camp, maybe I'm a little hypocritical here, because uh, I just spent our first down segment talking about the Jets and Revis and Tim Tebow. And you know, training camp, NFL coverage 24-7, America's most popular sport. Media outlets camped out all over the country. A lot of stories, quarterback battles, Jets, this and that will be covered. But let me ask the media to spend a little time on Brian Banks. And not just will he or will he not make the Atlanta Falcons, but how did we get to this point? What can we do to prevent this from happening again? Some in sports media complain that they're not taken seriously as legitimate journalists. Well, in sports, there are always legitimate, real societal issues you can cover. And you can use sports as your backdrop. Gays in the NFL is one of those. Brian Banks is another. And what happens with him? Let's hope that this summer, as we get closer to training camp, and when we get into training camp in late July and August, some members of the sports media and football media take advantage of that. We'll wait and see. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 45 of the Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer. Again, thanks to Shalise Manziang, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe, for taking the time coming on the show today. Hopefully you enjoyed my conversation with Shalise about a couple of big topics. As always, feel free to send me an email. areamer at bu.edu is my email address. That's the best way to reach me. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter. At AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. As always, if you have a comment to post on this week's show, we highly encourage you to do so at footballnation.com. Thanks go out to everyone out there listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll talk to you next on Football Nation today, next Wednesday. So long. Talk to you then.